Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Haddon with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today, and I am joined, as always, by my good friend and business partner, Mr. Jason Neal Johnston Yellen. That was that was flawless. I have not one complaint to make. Ooh, should, uh, should we end it there? Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's the shortest episode, but it's easily the one that makes me the happiest. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was that was lovely. I'm normally used to being all curmudgeonly in the beginning when you've ballsed up the introduction, and now it's we're off to a lovely start. So, how have you been? <laughs> Does, <laughs> do, do my openings normally make you a bit a bit angry, a bit uh, curmudgeonous? No. <laughs> no. You kind of said that it did make you. Let's not double back to that yeah, point. Okay, let's okay. let's just celebrate the fact that that was a lovely introduction, and it was a lovely thank introduction. you for welcoming me to our podcast. It was my pleasure to welcome you. I I do want to say, oh, let's keep the the good vibes going. That we've had a ton of positive feedback about our last episode. I'm insanely surprised about that. It's one of those ones. Where we took a detour, right? We took a detour with Avalonify. We, we took a detour with uh, with Garth Ennis, and this time we take a detour to discuss Sherry. And it's been an incredibly popular episode from a downloading perspective, from yep. a streaming perspective. And I was on one of the uh, Facebook pages, like a Scotch Scotch addict Facebook page, I think it was, and someone was talking about sherry or sherry matured whiskeys, and a listener just said, "Hey, you know, here's a great introduction to sherry from a whiskey perspective," and they posted our episode, and that was just so cool to see. It so wonderful to see. I'm uh, the thing I think that we said with with each of our detours is that we wanted to present something that would still be useful, mm-hmm. even though it was slightly out of the, the norm. Mm-hmm. And so with Garth Enos, there Ennis. was the... T- uh, every time. Um, it doesn't rhyme with penis. It rhymes <laughs> every with time. <laughs> every time. Um, there was this kind of whiskey and creativity conversation. Yeah. With Adol Rafai, there was whiskey and kind of... Improv, improvisation and, comedy, uh, and again yeah. and again creativity but yes comedy and 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 they both had had wonderful feedback as well and so to now go down the path with sherry and talk about an aspect of maturation that you know do we really know that much about it do we know much about our amontillados and our olorosos and our pedro Jimenez's? it's yeah, it was great. I, I I loved recording it. Being in Spain obviously helped, mm-hmm. but I loved recording it, and I'm and I'm glad that people found it useful. So so if you if you skipped over it, and I understand why you might, um, definitely go back and give it a little listen. You might be pleasantly surprised uh, at what we covered in an episode that you might ordinarily think isn't for you. Yeah. Yep. Good. I've actually went back to it. Went. That's not how you. That's not how you structure a sentence. You don't went back to something. You go back to something. Uh, I, I've I've gone back to it. Uh, I'm just one, letting you work this out <laughs> between you and your God. <laughs> I've gone back to it, and it was great hearing Quan go over the labels, how to read the labels, and to just to hear him talk about the origin 
of the names of the various types of sherries. I wanted to hear that again. Uh, and and it's, I just find it cool. I like absolutely. You know, there, there's a reason Marvel makes origin stories, right? People are interested <laughs> in that. This is the origin story of Sherry. I kind of like that. <laughs> Coming soon, a detour with the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> Hulk smash! <laughs> uh, yeah, it's hard to get the bottles poured. He just smashes them all. It's very difficult. He's like a, a Hulk in a china shop. No. <laughs> No? Hello? Is this thing on? I, was, I paused for a second because I was thinking it that might have worked. Uh, maybe. Did it work? I don't and then, think it worked. Uh, I found it kind of mildly humorous. Mm. <laughs> so so now uh, we jump back into to the whiskey world. Mm-hmm. And this is an interview that I recorded. Yes. Back in November it was. I think a little bit before Thanksgiving, wasn't it? It was a little bit before Thanksgiving. You are correct. Thank you. And they're good people at Southern Distilling Company. And I'd been down there, actually in the October, early October, I went down there for the very first time. They're in Northwest North Carolina, in Statesville. Northwest North Carolina. Exactly. North Carolina being the state, Northwest being their location within the state. Oh, so it's not like a, 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 a South Southwest, Northwest North. Or, kind of. or North by Northwest. North by Northwest, sure. So, no, North Carolina is the state, Northwest is our location in the state. Okay. And it means they're a, a mere three and a half hours from my front door. Nice. And so it's it's nice and easy for me to, to drive down 81 for a while. Not 81 is a terrible road to drive on, but I head down 81 and then across 77 and boom, I'm right at the distillery. It's really convenient. What prompted you to go there? Because before you went there, it was something that was, you know, this distillery was completely off of my radar. I hadn't heard of it. And so I'm curious, how did you hear about them? How did... How did all that come about? Yeah, well, they've only been open since the spring of 2017. Yeah. So they're they're reasonably new on the scene. And I I get the ADI newsletter. Oh. Okay. The American Distilling Institute. Institute, yep. Newsletter. Mm-hmm. And uh, Southern Distilling Company had a little sidebar in one of the newsletters. And I saw North Carolina... I saw what they were doing, which is this mix of their own product and sourced product Mm -hmm. and contract distilling. So they're covering a a number of areas. Yeah, yep. And I thought, gosh, that's awfully close to me. I should definitely uh, go and see them. And so I reached out to Vienna. Mm -hmm. Uh, Vienna and Pete Barger are the owners there. Okay. Uh, And I reached out to them. And Vienna said, yeah, come visit, please. And you and I actually were on in Scotland on a trip at the time. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. Yeah. And when I got back here, organized it, went down the road and had a wonderful visit. And one of the things that we'll cover in the interview today, we've got a lot of fantastic... Yeah, yeah. Would we, I, I'm not allowed to call it footage, that's correct? No, I have we, to we call just, it... Just call it audio. audio. Yeah, we just oh, yes. call it audio. Okay, it's 2019. I like to get my year started by using the right words with you. You know, you tried that last year in 2018, <laughs> and it was it was the same. 
it was the same nomenclature. Like, how do I say this? And you fucked it up first episode. So let's see if you go and done fuck it up again. <laughs> you can say you're watched by me. So I've heard that about you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, the facility is is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And, and one of the things that we will uh, visit in the audio mm-hmm. today, success, bing, uh, <laughs> is that it looked to me, when I got there for the first time and I walked around it for the first time, they looked like they were into their second expansion. And, and one of the things from our relationships with American distillers is you walk in the door and you say, okay, this, this is a ton of fun. You're living your dream. You're making it work. You're busting your hump. But you know that the, that the size yeah. is going to ultimately impact you. Yeah. And you're going to have to grow. Sure. Uh, you know, our, our friends, we mention them all the time. Uh, Scott and Becky Harris at Catoctin Creek moved from one of those little industrial kind of walk-ups mm-hmm. to this beautiful facility in downtown Purcellville. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and they knew they were going to outgrow their space. Hundreds of American distillers know they're going to outgrow their space. Mm-hmm. Vienna and Pete set out to build a space that they would grow into. And so it's it's large. It's very mm-hmm. large. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm leaving the details out so that Vienna can cover it. Uh, we'll talk to Vienna, who's the owner. We'll talk to Susan, uh, who's the, the kind of the production manager down there in charge of distillation down there. Uh, and we'll let her talk more about what they've got on site and what they use on site. Uh, yeah, and uh, not to take too many words out of Susan's mouth or, or Vienna's mouth here, but as you're talking about the size of the facility itself, I found it interesting that both of them referred to the distillery as a craft distillery, opening up a craft distillery. And the operation is massive in comparison to your typical American craft distillery, where they're doing, they're filling, again, not to take out too many words from the portion of Susan's interview, but they're doing 15 barrels an hour. Or they at least can. All right. Okay. So they can, but they're, you know, working six days per week. They want to get to 24 seven. And I found that pretty fascinating. In my opinion, that's to the point where it's not craft anymore. You're, you're reaching a volume that's beyond craftiness. But we're still just kicking around a nebulous term. Yeah. Right? yeah. We, we, we say this all the time. We, we had a wonderful conversation with David Jennings at Rarebird 101 this week mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a Google Hangout where you mentioned the word craft and it means different things to different people. And for some people, it's an immediate no-go zone, right? Yeah. And for, for some people, oh, that's interesting. I'm, I'm into it now. I want to learn more. It's, you know, what does craft mean? It's a nebulous term that we use very loosely. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, good. So I interrupted you. Before. Yeah, so so I, I wanted to say before we really get into the the dynamics of what they're doing at Southern Distilling Company, Vienna took some time to really deliver some historical context for what they see themselves continuing mm-hmm. within the state of North Carolina, 
And for me, it started to answer a lot of questions that I had. When you and I go to Kentucky and we're with distillers in Kentucky, a lot of people will talk about North Carolina familyage, North Carolina lineage, mm-hmm. uh, North Carolina knowledge. And Vienna did a, a lovely job of helping me understand why so many people in Kentucky reference North Carolina. History. So Pete is actually a, a Statesville native. So even growing up in the city of Statesville, uh, he was unaware of the rich spirits history that this region had. And it wasn't really until we built the distillery, we're building the distillery, and we were researching and visiting the local historical society and um, looking for history, photography, images of spirits in the area. We knew that um, this area has been known for the the moonshine history and the development that has happened up the road from us a little bit further off in the hills. Um, during which really got started with the Prohibition era. But what we came to find out was that this area actually had uh, a very rich spirits history before Prohibition and was actually touted as the liquor capital of the world back in the late 1800s. So it all started in, even before that, 1750, an Irishman named Fergus Sloan immigrated, came over from Ireland, and he brought with him the first copper and tin still that was said to be set up in the state of North Carolina, right here in Statesville. And it was about 35, 40 years later that he sold a good portion of his property to the town commissioners in Statesville, and that is really where the city of Statesville got its start. So from the very beginning, we had that that history of distilling here. This has always been a really rich agricultural community, just as it is today. We're fortunate that we're able to get most of our grains here right from within a 20-mile radius of the distillery. It was that way back in the day as well. And a lot of those farmers would have extra grain and had learned to distill that grain to be able to, to, you know, it was a lot cheaper to distill it and to have whiskey or brandy from fruit that they could then sell uh, rather than trying to haul grain out on a wagon was much more expensive and not nearly as profitable. So this area really grew to to be known for alcohol production. There were over um, 220 still sites on the census in 1820 in the area. And as time continued to move forward, this area also became a hub for the railroad lines for both the East Coast and heading out West. So the combination of farm stills Railroad lines and this area really being that hub continued to grow the spirits industry in Statesville. There were half a dozen really large-scale liquor wholesale houses that grew up in Statesville. We had uh, Lowenstein and Company. Uh, Dr. Julius Lowenstein came down here from Rochester, New York and started a uh, rectifying and wholesale distillery. We had P.B. Key and Company. P.B. Key actually came up here from Louisiana. He was a wealthy planter there and the uh, great nephew of Francis Scott Key that wrote our Star Spangled Banner. But Key and Company opened here as well. We had uh, J.C. Summers and Company. And their uh, old celebrated Hunting Creek Rye Whiskey is one that we now own the trademark for and we'll be re-releasing and bringing back to life uh, with our rye whiskey here from Southern Distilling Company. But all of those folks really were what, what founded the industry and truly what built our historic downtown district and the, and the city of Statesville. Now, unfortunately, one of the things that comes along with a lot of liquor production uh, is the temperance movement and folks that were not as excited about all of those folks making, selling, and consuming alcohol. 
So the city of Statesville actually was where um, prohibition in North Carolina kind of got its, its kickstart, jumpstart. In 1903, uh, our legislator from here in Statesville introduced a bill, the Watts Act, that was intended to fend off a more drastic London bill. The London bill would have prohibited sale, manufacture, transport of liquor everywhere except for towns that had a population of over 5,000, which was a lot of people back then. So the Watts Act prohibited that manufacture, sale, and transport of alcohol in unincorporated towns. Um, Statesville was incorporated at the time, so that was, you know, they were able to continue to to have the production here. However, um, it didn't take a a long time for our state legislature to to figure that out, and they ended up extending the law in 1905 to extend that prohibition to towns that were fewer than 1,000 residents. So at the time, um, that combined with what they called a local vote option, which has been a foundation of North Carolina's liquor control from the beginning, um, ended up causing the city of Statesville to vote for for taking their city dry, as well as to reduce uh, production to towns that had more than 1,000 residents. Wow. So at the time, that meant 68 of 98 counties in North Carolina went dry uh, long before the rest of the country, and then the state as a whole adopted prohibition in 1909. Wow. Um, and we like to say this is uh, the original birthplace of bourbon because we had lots of bourbon, rye, whiskey, brandy production occurring right here in Statesville. And when North Carolina decided that they were going to get out of that business, all of those employees and still sites uh, picked up and moved on over to Kentucky and Tennessee where they could continue operating because they didn't adopt prohibition until much later. I've often wondered about that because in speaking with people in the industry in Kentucky, you do, you do hear about origin stories coming out of North Carolina. And yes. I, I wondered why that was the case, and now I have my answer. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's, that's wonderful to share. So, so we're proud to be bringing that rich history back and to be the first distillery here, first legal distillery in Statesville since 1903. Oh, congratulations. You're doing it the right way. There's no doubt about that. Thank you. Cheers. With that little bit of historical context in place, I think it now makes sense to put some of those details to what we were starting to discuss earlier, which is what do Pete and Vienna have in front of them? What have they built? And why have they built it the way that they have? She answered all those questions for me as well. I want to back up to one, yeah, one additional point relative to, to building the facility and, and what Pete and I saw as we really took the time and, and did our due diligence in putting the business model together. We um, became part of ADI, joined early on as we were, you know, five, six years ago as we were beginning this effort. Uh, we joined American Craft Spirits Association when it was founded and have spent a lot of time talking with other distilleries in the craft industry and seeing whatever, what other people's needs were. And we identified that there really was a, a gap and an opportunity for us in the market for someone to be able to come in and do collaborative custom distillation work in partnership with other distilleries at various stages in their development. So whether it's a distillery that hasn't even built yet and has a, a, a vision for a whiskey and wants to lay down their own recipe now so that it'll be ready to release when they open their doors two or three years down the road. There's that foresight again. <laughs> 
uh, to somebody who has their own operation now, but maybe their equipment, the square footage of their facility restricts how much they can produce. And they're successful and they're doing well with their brands and they really need some additional support in production of whatever various spirits that they may, they may be producing. So we, we definitely built the plant for our own spirits and to be able to produce as much as, as the market would demand of what we make here for Southern, Southern Distilling Company and our Southern Star brand and our future Hunting Creek brand as well. And also to have that additional capacity to, to be able to meet the needs of other distilleries and brand owners. Um, and I will say it's been, uh, while it's, it's very, um, <laughs> there's a lot of work with building any new brand and with building any distillery. So there's, a, there's effort that everyone is putting into growing their new businesses. But one of the, I think, surprising aspects for me and a, a great joy of what we've been doing is being a part of everyone else's dream as they are building or growing their distillery or their brand. Um, it's been such fun to, to be a little piece of what other people are doing as they grow their businesses as well. Yeah, and jo Josh and I have said that since 2011 as well. This is a wonderfully collaborative business. And the, the friendships and the camaraderie within the, you know, the industry across the ocean as well um, is absolutely wonderful. And Agreed. Listening back to Vienna and talking about how North Carolina was was a self-proclaimed distilling capital of the world, right? This this mm -hmm. is a place where you had over 200 stills going on and extra grain to still it, sell it for more money than you would selling the extra grain. It it reminded me of of the stories of Campbelltown in Scotland where that was the distilling capital of Scotland. That's where it was all happening. You had 37 or 38 some odd distilleries in that tiny little town. And add a few years on, let time pass, and, and, and then you're down to, to two. And then you're up to three with, with the addition of Glen Gyle. And it's so interesting, the parallels there, where you had this, this huge distilling capital and then it goes to nothing both in North Carolina and Statesville and in Scotland, Campbelltown. I found that kind of interesting, that parallel there. Well, on one hand, you've got Campbelltown being a victim of their own ambition, yeah, where they try to, to rise up to fill this global demand and unfortunately just got a little too far ahead of themselves, mm -hmm. then started to lose industries round about the whiskey industry. Uh, and you, you virtually have this, you know, recession uh, on on a Scottish peninsula. Mm -hmm. uh, mean, meanwhile, in in North Carolina, you've got some smart politicians trying to protect themselves from the temperance, move, temperance movement, mm -hmm. and then getting caught up in the wave of it. Wasn't and that around the same time though? The 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 Patterson crash wasn't that in the early 1900s? Yeah, you're, yeah, you're spot on. Right. Yeah. So you have crashes for for two different reasons. You've got the, the, the Patterson crash in in the UK, and then you had uh, the temperance movement and prohibition here in the US. Interesting that those two kind of coincide. Yeah, I tell you, after coming out of the Sherry episode where I did a little bit of fact-checking as we went along, 
Uh, I just had to quickly do a little Google for the Patterson crash as you were talking there. Yeah, and? And? Uh, just to see. Ooh, how to uh, do, how to do, how to do. The Patterson crash was a major contraction in the late 19th and early 20th century. Nailed it. By the last decade of the 1800s, investment in whiskey had become very trendy. Many entrepreneurs were asking for and receiving huge loans to purchase Scotch whiskey stocks as a business investment. And then guess what? It went badly. <laughs> so, yeah, we are. We're talking about um, yeah, around similar times. In 1906, production had dropped below 24 million gallons. Wow. A reduction of nearly one third in just nine years. Amazing. Amazing. So yeah, well done, Joshua. I love it. Thank love you, sir. It. I love it when I can fact check and it proves you right, sir. <laughs> yeah. Wow. This isn't a gotcha. I'm not here to not here to set you up for failure. I want to see you succeed. I oh. want to see you open your wings and fly. <laughs> but but we still have to get things right along the way. But you know what? If I was proven wrong. I'm happy to say I was wrong and learn and then start teaching correct news. So beautiful. No fake news here. No hashtag <laughs> fake news. <laughs> I, I, I knew what that setup was for. I knew where that was going. <laughs> so, so with that said, mm-hmm. I, I think now might be a, an excellent time. Oh my goodness. What a beautiful seg. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about uh, the TTB. So with the TTB, I found it interesting. You had this conversation with Vienna back in November. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything was ticking along. You could get some labels turned around in four days. Yeah. It was one of the quickest turnarounds you and I had seen in a good number of years. Oh, yeah. Oh, there was one time, I think, where it went, at least for us, as long as 72 days. Mm -hmm. And, And we have friends within the industry, Raj, right, who who imports Amrut, and him mm-hmm. trying to get the TTB to understand the term Indian single malt whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but my point is, you've got Vienna here, who does, I think, an excellent job talking about the TTB and how she's used her previous life in government work to help her navigate her interactions with the TTB, whether it's label approval or whether it's formula approval. And, and here we are now, and we'll, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but I thought right now it's, it's really timely, this, this, this bit, because we as an independent bottler are dealing with the government shutdown. Many people are dealing with the government shutdown. So what we have to do in a way, as small beans uh, compared to some of the people who are really hit hard. But we simply cannot introduce new products into the U.S. until the government is reopened because the TTB is shut down. Yep. And uh, just to do one of the things you tend to do to me, you're quite laissez-faire about your use of this TTB uh, uh, abbreviation here, this acronym, if it is, probably isn't. Um, TTB, Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau. Wait, TTB. (laughs) Let me get this right. Quite clearly, TTB is the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax (laughs) and Trade Bureau. Oh, you know what it is? 
it's it's kind of like in the in the Hebrew alphabet. You've got certain letters uh, like the <laughs> the aleph and the ayin, which are silent. So I think there may be an aleph and an ayin somewhere in there uh, that isn't presented. Okay, yeah, I, I don't know why the a triple t b didn't work for them. A triple t b sounds like a gang. JTP, JTP. JTP, JTP. <laughs> You're thinking of M13. Oh, right, M13, right. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the so TTB stands for, I always thought it was Tax and Trade Bureau, but it, what is it again? Well, yeah, you, you've got the, the second half of it. The first half is <laughs> Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau. All right. No firearms anymore, right? Uh, that's, yeah, nobody regulates them anymore. Mm-hmm. You just... You just walk into a Hobby Lobby and pick up a, a gun. That's easy. Hmm, nice. All right. Note to self. Note to self. That, that's me writing on paper. Okay. So, so yeah. yeah. So, so with with that said, yeah, yeah, it was it was really interesting to me hearing, and and I certainly communicate this in the part of the interview that we're about to play. But it was really interesting listening to uh, a business owner, a distillery owner saying, yeah, the, the TTB is fine, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, if, if, you, if you understand what they're asking you for yeah. and you give them what you're asking, what they're asking for, you'll have success. Yeah. Now, to the point that you were just alluding to, we're now going to go through a multi-day, I think we're, we're through, you know, 30, geez, it, what was the number? It's 35 days as of... The day of this recording, okay, and so okay. you can, you can, and people have been yep. sub- submitting new labels. Mm-hmm. That's alcohol. That's beer. That's spirits to the TTB, and that is just piling up, piling up, piling up. And while we got to a point where you're getting labels approved in four days, in some cases, you know, like uh, Vianna had said, they got one uh, approved in a day. God knows what's going to happen. Who knows when the government's going to reopen? And God knows how long it's going to take the TTB to get through the massive piles of of labels that need to be inspected and reviewed. Yeah, yeah. I was reading a little a little article the other day about craft beer producers. If you think how quickly craft beer producers are turning around their product, oh my gosh, they yeah. rely on new labels. Mm-hmm. To, to get new product out there. Then they're also dealing with freshness. Fresh dish. Easy for me to say. They're also dealing with freshness issues. Maybe I should have said issues of freshness. Oh, no, maybe issue, that, oh issues. Yeah. Does that gotta, sound much, much worse? It, it makes me want to close my legs. That, that's all I have to say. <laughs> well, yes, I am cleaning under my arms as I'm telling you this. That is an issue of freshness. <laughs> Yeah, if you think about craft brewers and and kind of their their born on dates, yeah, right, and yeah. their their IPAs and their their max hops and max hop freshness, this is all time sensitive, and without the TTB approving a label, they're in a a terrible holding pattern. So yeah, beer, wine, us with whiskey, vodka, gin, like yeah, name it. Look around your liquor stores you're not going to be seeing new products coming in. Yeah, new products and innovation at a screeching halt. Yep. yep. Yeah, yeah, this is 
Yeah, you're right to say there are there are far-reaching consequences. We are one, uh, we are one island uh, in all of this. But this is serious business. Yes, uh, there are lots of entities losing lots of money, and um, yeah, we're we're in that same holding pattern with new releases coming in from Scotland. It mm. is not cool. I'm not happy. No, neither am I. But 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 let's hear Vienna talk about the TTB when they're actually open and how she's able to navigate through that. Because I, I thought that that was pretty interesting. I come from a career in public health. I worked for the state of North Carolina Division of Public Health for 15 years for my career managing one of our state Medicaid programs for pregnant women. Uh, it was a fantastic program to work with and I enjoyed it very much. But uh, I will say I'm having an, an awful lot of fun owning a business and being part of this industry and the distilling community. So this might be a, a stretch of a question. Are there similarities between running a nationwide uh, Medicare program for pregnant women and running a, a large 25,000 square foot distillery? I think there are a lot of similarities and there certainly are some, some skills and strengths that my uh, prior career gave me that are very uh, helpful in this industry. One, being regulatory compliance and working with the bureaucracy and government. Um, most of what I did in, in North Carolina was very similar, where we had North Carolina regulations and, and guidelines and laws to comply with, as well as federal grant requirements. So very similar to the distilling industry, where we've got our, our state control system here in North Carolina to work within, uh, as well as anything that the TTB requires from us at the federal level. And the other piece of it that um, w I think translated very nicely from my public health career into this industry is uh, relationships and collaboration and being able to work with others, whether it's somebody that you've met for the first time or an ongoing you know, multi-year relationship, being able to, to work in partnership with others, other businesses, um, other individuals is something that I did across the board with my work in public health um, and is certainly a necessity in, in the spirits industry. It's interesting because I've, I've spoken to so many distillers and, and so many people opening new distilleries in both America and Scotland. And there's this love of distillation that brings them into the fold. And then they get hit with all this bureaucracy that they just think, no, I'm here to make whiskey. Where did all this bureaucracy come from? And I think you might be one of the first people. I've maybe met a, a couple of lawyers who came to distilling as well. You're one of the few people who came into this with bureaucracy, yeah. um, ready, prepared to deal with someone like the TTB. And I, I love hearing that. Um, has anything, given that we talk about the TTB a lot, and we talk about labels and processing and sometimes recipes, has there been anything that's happened with the TTB that, that surprised you or anything that looked like a potential roadblock that your history was able to roll flat pretty easily? Um, well, we haven't encountered a lot of roadblocks, and I will say that, that since we began this adventure five to six years ago, uh, a lot of the services and support from the TTB have improved since that time. So that has been nice <laughs> to be seeing timeframes better for approvals across the board for all of the things that, um, that they need to give a nod to. But I, I think it's really just been um, helpful to, to, to know, to be able to do the research, understand guidelines, the CFR, where the rules come from, and then as well as to understand the position of any specialist administrator, anybody who's trying to do their job, 
and help them to be able to do their job. So it's knowing what folks are needing to do on their end, uh, whether it's TTB or here in North Carolina, our alcohol beverage control system, and helping them to be able to do their job and still get the, the answers and the approvals, et cetera, <laughs> that we need in order to operate our business. It's not often I get to hear somebody giving props to the TTB, so well done <laughs> to you for saying nice things about no, them. It's, it's been good. It's been good. And I've gotten some, you know, lately nice phone calls and good conversations and um, folks that are really, I think, have the intention of helping businesses move forward, which is very helpful. We'll hear more from Vienna later on in the episode when we uh, close out with our usual misconception. Mm -hmm. But if that was a conversation with a distillery owner and, and her perspective on what it takes to build a business grow a business, operate a business. Mm -hmm. Vienna is also responsible for hiring the right person yeah. to be in charge of production, distillation, maturation. And so I had the distinct pleasure of also interviewing Susan Sigmund when I was there. Yeah. Yep. And I really love Susan's enthusiasm for distillation. She was so brilliant to listen to. I was I was so engaged in that conversation that the two well, of you had. And well, and one of the things I was I was saying to both Vienna and Susan is we meet a lot of and and, and we may have just used some of this audio uh, previously, but it, it bears repeating. You and I meet a lot of distillers mm -hmm. who are really enthusiastic about distillation, yeast, grain, cuts, wood influence. And that's when the other elements of running the business start to impinge upon them. Yeah. Well, you also need to maintain spreadsheets and books and TTB approval and formula submission. And so I think in listening to Vienna where she has got this absolutely wonderful skill set that takes care of those, <laughs> I, I want to say, less exciting elements of running a business. I, I know Vienna disagrees with those words. I know that she finds them <laughs> perfectly interesting and exciting. Um, but, it, but if you're really enthusiastic about distillation, the parts with the TTB are, are nowhere near as, as interesting mm. or as exciting. So I think the fact that you've got Vienna on one side handling all those levels and you've got Susan on the other side handling the distillation and the mm -hmm. production and the maturation mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Yeah. What a wonderful one-two punch for Southern Distilling Company to have. Oh, yeah. I tell you, though, I've, I've got... I'm a bit concerned about you, Jason. I don't know if I'm concerned or if I have a bone People have been to saying this to me my whole life, Joshua. Right. So obviously when, when I edit these episodes, I edit the episodes. And there's certain things that get included <laughs> and certain things Today's that... Today's truism. When Joshua edits the episodes, he edits the episodes. <laughs> Do continue, good sir. I'm curious to see where this goes. <laughs> uh, Webster's Dictionary defines yeah. editing as... Um, yeah. Um, editing as old as time <laughs> since time began okay yes what's what's your point my point is before you started your conversation with susan before uh -huh, i'm following mm -hmm. uh, you handed her the microphone and just as we do anytime we have a guest on 
and they're holding yeah. a microphone. You tell them, hold it, you know, one potato. In other words, <laughs> a fist away from, from the, you know, the, you want your mouth about a fist's uh, length away from the actual microphone, right? And so you told her, <laughs> one potato. And she responded with two potato. So let's, yeah. l- let's, let's hear that. One potato. Two potato. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> okay. So now that we've heard that, when, when you say, t- tell me, say one potato. Tell me that. One potato. Two potato. What is your response? What should you say as, as, as your God-given right as a human being? If you say one potato and I say p- two potato, what do you say? Three potato? Four. And that never happened. Did we leave you hanging, Joshua? Oh, she, you, <laughs> you did it. You said one potato. She followed your lead, and then you just, you just let it go. Kind of very upsetting. It's, I, had to, I had to pause. I pulled over for a little bit. I, I you know, regained composure. Uh, I, lost, I lost faith in you, is, is what happened. <laughs> no, my mind just immediately went to... Uh, check, check, one, one, two, one, two. And, and so when I heard one potato, two potato, I just, I thought of a roadie uh, saying one potato, two potato, as opposed to check, check, one, two, one, two. Yeah. You know, how many, roadies, how many roadies does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, I, I don't know. How many? One, two, one, two. <laughs> well, anyway, I, I just... I don't want our listeners to judge you too harshly. <laughs> However, I want them to judge you. <laughs> wow, we were having such a nice episode. It was all going so swimmingly, and then we get to this mm-hmm. point, and it's, it's taken a very dark turn, Joshua. Well, you can only blame yourself, Jason. So, <laughs> so in listening to the raw audio, mm-hmm. you had said that you might want to have the, the Susan portion just go into the conversation that, that she and I had. Yeah, listen. This is a, a technique that we've used previously with some of your interviews where they've just been so pleasantly conversational and back and forth that we'll just let them run mm-hmm. and let the listeners enjoy that conversational back and forth. Yeah, I, I, think, I think splitting it up in any way, shape, or form would detract from how beautifully that conversation went. I thought it flowed perfectly. I thought your follow-up questions were just spot on and her answers were, were exactly what I wanted to hear and delivered information uh, that was surely new to me. So, so let's just listen to that bit of it. So listeners, you're going to have uh, a good portion of time where it's just Jason and Susan, but it is, I found it to be as geeky a conversation as as ones that we've had with say Matt Hoffman of of Westland, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, and and some of the other ones like with um, Becky Harris at at Catoctin Creek, where she can just go through the intricacies of of how she distills. So so let's let's just hear that, and uh, and then we'll come back with some news or other stuff we have up our sleeves. We're now sitting with Susan. Uh, last name again? Sigmund. Sigmund. And your production manager? Distillery Operations Manager, I believe, is the official title. Distillery Operations Manager. That sounds fantastic. 
It's a great title. <laughs> yeah. And so, so you're doing all the things behind the scenes. Are you, you're distilling, you're maturing, you're bottling, you're in charge of all of those aspects? That's correct. I have a, a great support team, but I'm essentially the manager of all aspects of production from okay. um, receiving the grain, grain inventories, you know, grinding, cooking, fermenting, distilling, barreling, bottling. Um, <laughs> That's a long of, list. All of that. Yes, yes. I'm quite busy, but I have a, a great team as well. So when I first met you back in October, yes, you, you told me a little bit of your history. Yes. It's not technically in distilled spirits as I would understand distilled spirits, right. but you do have a history, a background in distilling. Uh, yes, um, briefly. So my education background is I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in chemical engineering. So my background and my career really focus on the process side of things. Um, and as Vienna alluded to, there's a lot of things that translate from one career to another career. And so my process background um, was specifically in personal care products. So we, we worked with um, you know a lot of thermodynamics, um, heat, cooling, direct heat injection, you know, cooling um, reactors, four thousand gallon reactors, etc. So I was very comfortable around that size of equipment, that scale of things. Um, but the other part of it that that came with that was the government regulation that came with personal care products. They're used yeah. for human. Um, you know, human uh, skin contact and, and, you know, for some of them, human consumption. So there was very, very strictly regulated. So I came with that knowledge of, you know, regulation and quality control and everything like that, that, that sure. has to go into a product. So I brought that. And then in addition, um, I was very fortunate with my uh, father's career to live all over the world. So we, uh, mostly, in, mostly in Europe and in the United States, um, but we got to visit a lot of other unique places. But... Um, in Europe, as you know, um, you grow up from a very early age with wine and spirits as part of um, part of your family, part of your meals, um, part of your socialization. So from a very early age, we were introduced to wine and spirits. And um, my dad is also, um, he's my nerd partner. He is my chemical engineer as well. And so from the time I can remember, he was making his own wine and beer and spirits. And um, we've just, it's just always sort of been a part of us and a part of our family. So once we moved to North Carolina, obviously that had to cease and desist. So he still <laughs> makes beer, but everything else had to stop. And so um, it's just been a passion of ours and a passion of our family and a passion of mine for a long time. So when I uh, found out the distillery was opening, um, you know, I, I sent my resume in right away. So, and it worked out beautifully. And I've been here since production started. So it was myself and um, a uh, distillery hand, and, and we both started up the production in March of last year. Okay, so March, March of 2017. Of, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we opened the doors to the public in April. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. When you first started production in March of 2017, were you operating both the pot still and the column still that are right next to us right now? Uh, no, we started with the main system. We started with the continuous column. Um, it is sort of the mothership of the facility. It's 40 feet tall and um, 18 inches in diameter. There's, you know, um, 16 trays of distillation in the, the stripping section and another four in the reflux. And um, we decided to start with that system. But when, when I first started, um, you know, we were testing pipes for leaks. I mean, we were at the very, very beginning stages 
of, of production. Um, you know, we, we have a roller mill, double roller mill. We were, you know, spent days getting the right grind profile and, and making sure that, that everything flowed where it was supposed to. And so we decided to go ahead and start with small batches and nail down our recipe and our temperatures and our yeast and, and, um, and then from there, slowly over, you know, probably several months, two to three months, we would increase production. And then we um, got to where we now run six days a week with cooking and distilling. Whoa, so, that's, that's impressive within 18 months of yes. beginning operations. Mm-hmm. So we uh, right now currently do uh, approximately 15 barrels a shift. Um, comes out of our column, and that's one of the reasons we decided to start with the the sweet mother, as she's called. Um, and so, in any given week, running a single shift, you know, we can make um, several hundred barrels. So um, that's that's good production. That's good numbers yes. right out the gate. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what type of grain are you bringing in? Uh, obviously, for a, an in-house bourbon, you'll be bringing in your corn. That, so. Yes, yeah, so we try to do local as much as possible. So we get our, um, for our spirits in particular, we do local corn, wheat, rye. It's all grown within Iredell County, which is where we live. Um, the malt, um, we are still working with a local malt supplier to get the volumes we need, um, but we do get the malt out of state, but the rest of our grain is local. Um, and that was one of the visions that Pete and Vienna had was also, you know, being part of this local community and and. and really revamping um, local spirits history that Iredell County has. So uh, for our particular products, we do that. But again, as as Vienna alluded to, um, we do custom mash bills. And there are particular customers that would like their grain from their home state. So we will actually import their grain from their state or um, country and, and use their grain so it's in their mash bill. Um, so we have a variety of options. We have four large silos and then a small sort of dump hopper silo that we can put in small grains. So we can do up to, you know, a six grain batch. Wow. It, this is one of the things I was saying to Vienna last month. or This is one of the things I was saying to Vienna in October. You don't walk into a lot of 18-month-old facilities that are this size with these production numbers. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely fascinating to me to see how far it's come so quickly and with such a clear vision. And so even for you in March of 2017, what did you see ahead as the distiller on site? What were some of your hopes and aspirations for this fantastic facility where you now got to work? We've been busy, that's for sure. We've had a, we've had a busy 18 months. When we first came in, um, obviously my job was to make sure that Pete and Vienna's dream happened and that we produced the, the amazing spirit they had in mind you know, after the investment that they and the time they put into building this. So that was really my job, was to make sure that the, that spirit came out. And when we first started distilling, as, as Vienna had mentioned, the bourbon that came off the still, the bourbon whiskey that came off the still, was amazing. So I knew, I knew we had something special. I knew that, that even our distillate coming straight off the still was drinkable. I knew that it was amazing. So, and as she'll tell you, I keep asking, like, we need more. We need to produce more. We need more. We need more. So I, I was just excited to be part of making their recipes come to life. And so the beautiful thing is when we have all the various contracts come in as well, we get to experiment and explore. So we sure. will produce our own mash bill. And if you tweak them slightly or use a grain from a different state, you know, you get a very different flavor profile. And 
we've been really excited and you know lucky to have the opportunity to be able to to taste everyone else's spirits as well. So, you know, now I can you know we've distilled up to twelve different mash bills on any you know given quarter, and that's a unique thing I think for a distiller to have to be able to do. I agree. That's absolutely remarkable. And are those mash bills going through? Obviously, depending on either Vienna and Pete's demands or or a contract's demands. Are they going through either column or pot still? Are they all going through column still? What's the role of the, the pot still in the facility? Yes, yeah, so there are some products that, that just are going to be a better fit for the pot still. And we'll talk about this in a minute. I believe you said the apple brandy that we're working mm-hmm, absolutely. on. Absolutely. Um, that needs to be run in a pot still. Um, we use the pot still for product development. So we will cook a smaller batch for a customer that they want you know, 20 to 25 gallons, they want to try them in various barrels, but not make the commitment of a 5,000 gallon fermentation tank. They may want to try tweaking the recipe slightly before they buy such large volumes of grain that's required to make the larger batch. For any grain-based recipe, the the goal is to get people transitioned over to the column, over to the, 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 the main continuous distillation column. Gotcha. So we use a pot still for trial batches. We use it for samples. We use it for, we've had some customers come in that wanted to be trained on a pot still. So we allowed them to use our system and, and um, you know, we oversaw what they were doing and, and just introduced them to the functionality of the pot still. And, and so uh, the goal is to transition people to the main column. That's the most efficient way to, to produce these spirits. So I'm going to lean on your expertise for a moment here. So Talk to me a little bit about column still distillation. For me, growing up in Scotland, column still is used in grain whiskey production, mm-hmm. uh, where the distillate is distilled to an incredibly high number, mm-hmm. uh, almost to create neutral grain spirit that becomes sure. you know, the, the, the greater side of a, a, a blended bottle of whiskey. So in my mind... Uh, a pot still is slow and steady and produces rich and unctuous distillate. Further to my mind, a column still produces something much cleaner, mm-hmm. uh, more pared down spirit, maybe not as much texture to it, but maybe not necessarily. Given the way you're talking about getting somebody set up on a pot, on a pot still with an experiment and then move to a column still, you're clearly doing something with the column still that is not common to my mind. So what do you see through distillation? How do you use a column to create, and I've tasted your new make spirit, mm-hmm. and the texture on it was the first thing I commented on. I poured it for Joshua. Texture was the first thing he commented on. Mm-hmm. So clearly, column stills aren't necessarily removing texture. So, right. so how do you use a column still uh, that's not making it neutral grain spirit? To begin with, the flavors and the, the the product that you're going to create really comes down to fermentation. So if I have a good, clean fermentation, also the yeast is extremely important, then what I distill is also going to be a good, clean product. So regardless of whether I'm distilling on the pot still or the column still, I, I need that good, clean fermentation and you know a, a very wise yeast selection for the different products that we're doing. 
So the column still, uh, essentially, you're, um, it's, it's a separation. Uh, we're not changing any chemistry. That's all happened in fermentation. So essentially, it's, it's a separation. So the various products will run on the column still slightly different, and we have a beautiful control system with both the column still and our cooker and fermentation tanks. So I'm able to use that control system to tweak the low wines that are coming off as well as the high wines to get that flavor profile that I'm after. So we are going to distill under 160 proof. And so we are not after this 190 clean proof. We don't have the column for that. That's not our goal. Our goal is to retain those flavors and those esters that have been produced in fermentation. Gotcha. Um, we're able to set our condenser temperatures, and we control them based off the vapor temperatures. We're able to set the flow rate. We're able to set the volume of steam. And we're able to maintain that within a few degrees, one to two degrees. And so the, the controls on this column are spectacular, which gives us repeatability and consistency as well. But that is, you know, as you talked about, the various products coming off of a pot still, you're going to make your cuts on those. And some of that, a little bit of artistry comes in and then also chemistry comes in. Um, so you are going to establish when your heads and hearts transition happen and, and, and same for your hearts and tails. The continuous column does that for us. So we have set our condenser temperatures such that the heads of your alcohols, the lighter alcohols, methanols, acetones, they will vent off. They, they don't even appear into our low wines. So when our low wines goes over to our doubler and redistills, the things that are in there are obviously what we want, the ethanol, the esters, the, the alcohol surrounding those that temperature profile, and some of the heavier alcohols as well. So we're able to set our, our temperatures again with the controls for the doubler so that the high wines that come off only contain the very specific products we want within that boiling point. So we use the column as, you know, like you said, you tasted a very clean product with a very great texture. It comes down to the, the ability of us to control that column. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now that, that completely changes how I think about column still distillation. Mm -hmm. You had a word in there that maybe our listeners aren't overly familiar with, high wines. And then, okay. and then you threw in another word that some on the Scottish side of production might not be as familiar with, the doubler. Okay. Are high wines in the double R? Are high wines happening in the double R? So, uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll backtrack slightly. The first pass that goes through the column, we feed the entire mash to the column. We don't separate. We don't filter. We feed the entire mash to the column. And as that rains down the column, um, we adjust our steam flow rate. And as you uh, pass on each tray, you will get richer and richer and richer in ethanol. And at the bottom of the column, obviously, you're ethanol poor. And that slop goes out to a farmer, again, to a local farmer. But as we collect that first pass through the column, um, that is what we're terming low wine. That is our first pass. It's been stripped of heads, but it still has the hearts and it still has the tails. All of that material is sent through a spirit safe, but really, you know, that's cosmetic. And, and so all of, all of the low wines are then sent to a doubler or a thumper, and they're all collected in there. Then we redistill. We're distilling all of those again, and that is um, what comes off is the final product, and that's our high wines. Beautiful. And, and, and then what strength will they be coming off at? So below 160, we typically distill, um, I would say, between 135 and 142, 143. We try to stay in that range. So our goal is to work with the control system that we have and work with the you know, ability to, to tweak temperatures and flow rates and steam flow rates 
to maintain those temperatures and with those specific temperatures, um, I know that I'm retaining the flavors and textures that I want that I spent all that you know, time fermenting trying to get. Absolutely wonderful. And then when you're giving the proofs that you're taking that off at, um, <laughs> the one, and <laughs> you Americans, you always trip me up with your proof and I'm trying <laughs> to half it in my head to get the ABV as I'm, as I'm going. But you said 135 to about 145 proof? Yes, yes somewhere in there. <laughs> so you're somewhere around 67 and a half percent. That doesn't sound that's right. That's correct. Right, right? ABV. Mm -hmm. to, what do you then put it in barrel at? So that, again, comes down to customer preference. We will put it in the barrel for the customer. Legally, I believe you have to put it in a barrel under 125. But we, specifically for our products, we barrel at 110. And that is our you know, water-alcohol ratio that, that we want to put them in the barrel at. We've gotten beautiful results. We've been able to tap our barrels at 19 months old and... and we're really excited about it. Some of our customers have uh, different preferences on their barrel entry proof, and that is up to them. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. One of the questions that we've always got for every distiller that we meet, and we always end up pitching Scotland against America on this <laughs> one, what role do you think grain plays in the final flavor uh, of the product that either comes out the still or comes out of the cask? Do you think that the grain is just there to provide you with fermentable sugars? Do you think it's actually delivering flavor to your final product? I think it delivers flavor. I think it's important the grain that is selected, uh, one, the grain is clean, two, that the grain is, um, you know, has that flavor that you're after. Um, you can pick a very neutral, muted down tasting wheat or rye, for example, but if you pick one that's very rich in flavor and, you know, has been grown properly, then um, you're, you will see the benefits of that in your distillate. And you were even saying to the point that as you taste from grain out of state, that you're yes. tasting differences. That's what, right. What, what kind of things are you tasting that are that's different? How does that manifest itself? You know, we had rye come from out of state. We've also had a wheat come from out of state. And the wheat that was grown local um, was a little bit spicier than the wheat that was grown out of state. And it potentially, we, you know... We were told certain varieties that we were getting, um, but when we're not dealing with the, um, you know, a lot of times our customers will send us the grain, so perhaps it was an older grain, perhaps it had sat in a silo longer, perhaps, you know, it was a blend of two different years worth of, of crop, um, so, you know, we control the, the cleanliness of it, but if that's the flavor profile after, that's the grain we're going to use. Interesting. So. I, this is why I love asking these types of questions. I would never have considered grain having sat for a year to deliver a flavor yeah. different from grain it's, that hadn't not, sat that yeah, long. Yeah, it's not common. Um, most of the time, you know, most of these people, the brokers that we're getting grain from, you know, they turn their grain over very, very quickly. But if, you know, we have a specific customer and they're, they're getting the last of, you know, before rye was, was harvested this year, we're getting the last of last year's rye. Um, it has been there for 10 months. So we need to be, you know, monitor the moisture content in that and the cleanliness of it and make sure that it's not been contaminated. And so we need to be careful, you know, when we're selecting grain, also pay attention to harvest season. And this year was not a great crop for rye in North Carolina. Um, so we're going to need to be mindful of that when we start to look for rye in the fall. 
So the follow-up question, what does not a great season for rye mean to a distiller? Um, I don't, the, the yields that the, our local farmers got that we normally source from were not as great. Um, we had a um, very, very rainy spring and summer. Our temperatures were off, so their, their yield was not as great. Um, but we have used small portions of the product that have come in, um, and the flavor's still great. And but so, we just need to be mindful of the yield. So... So just to be crystal clear on the use of even the word yield, you're talking about the yield in terms of the fermentable sugars that you're getting from the rye or the quantity of rye coming from a field? Both. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Look at you. Yes, both. Uh, you're just that good. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, so, you're, so they have less of it available and you're able to produce potentially less alcohol from the smaller amount that you have available to you. Potentially, yeah. So it's going to depend on how much starch, you know, they that um, if they use the same variety in seeds, you know, we should see the same, but we just need to be mindful that they just don't have as much yield to provide us this year. Yeah, no, it totally checks out. For those of us listening to this interview, farther afield than North Carolina and Virginia, our summer was garbage. Yeah. Uh, it was very wet. Uh, the tomatoes that we grew in our garden uh, kind of fell apart on mm. the vine and fell into the soil. Um, it was hopeless. So yeah. I, I didn't leave Scotland to have rainy summers yeah. uh, in America, and yet here I am. So now I'm frustrated. So as as distiller person uh, running the distillate, putting it into cask, what are you looking for the wood to do to the spirit that you're putting in it? And what type of wood, what type of setup do you have with your barrels that you're putting Southern Distilling Company whiskey into? Mm-hmm. We'll leave the contract stuff out. Okay. Specifically, the stuff you're distilling in-house, how are you maturing that on-site? So it has to be in new American oak barrels. That is the legal requirement for bourbon. And so that is obviously the barrels that we source. We use a char four, which is there's a char one to char four. Char four is obviously the strongest char. Um, That's going to give us a lot of flavor, a lot of color, but it also gives us a lot of surface area to work with. If you think of a burnt log, all the holes and, and... surface area and crevices in there, we now have that much more to work with as we age our product. So um, we, as I mentioned, go in the barrel at 110. Within several days, we we already see a beautiful color change. Um, we did taste our barrels at three months, six months, nine months, and a year. We're, we're just really excited to see how they age. And they're coming along beautifully. So we use Speyside Cooperage. And they have revamped the way they um, make barrels, and they the claim is, and, and we're seeing that result, is that there is less angels share, hmm. which is the earlier lighter alcohols, any headsier alcohols that are left behind that evaporate. Um, it's called the angel share. And um, so we are uh, we chose their barrels. Um, they're beautiful barrels, beautiful flavor, as well as, you know, hopefully we'll retain more of our product as it ages over years. So... The inevitable follow-up, why, how, how how are new design barrels reducing angel share? They're very tight cooperage. The way that they make their staves and the way that they put their staves together and the the hoops. And um, I have not been to their facility and a lot of their information is going to be proprietary. Uh So they're only going to share a little bit with us what we need to know. Checks out. Um, But they, um, it's a very tight cooperage and and we can attest to that. We have received barrels from numerous barrel coopers and um, some, you know, 
fill and leak. Some need to be rehydrated. Um, we've had some that all the bands had to be redriven down on them when they're only a week or two weeks old. Hmm. Space out is rack and fill. So I'll give them props that we can, or sorry, fill and rack that we can um, fill them and rack them. And, and um, time will tell as we, as we dump these barrels at the five-year mark and the 10-year mark, time will tell, you know, the loss. But um, they're very, very easy to work with. And that's one of the reasons we chose them for our product. Gotcha. Now we've been able to to with all the contract work see um, quite a few different coopers and and some of them are absolutely beautiful barrels hand sanded inside and out and and, and everything and they're absolutely gorgeous um, so we've been you know lucky to be able to experience that as well um, so to and again to be clear so when we say Speyside Cooperage for me they exist in Speyside in the north of Scotland they are now also in Kentucky. They have a plant in Ohio and a oh, plant in Kentucky, I believe. Look at that. Spaceside yeah. Cooperage taking over the world. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. Uh, start the rumor there's a plant coming to Japan any day now. Um, okay. So that, that's perfect. And then we mentioned it earlier. wanted to circle back to it. Mm -hmm. You are using the pot still for kind of experimental batches. Yes. However... You're about to start using it for apple brandy? Yes, I'm really excited about this project. So we worked with a local apple cider facility. Um, they serve to the public as well as larger facilities like ourselves. And the cider we're getting in particular is, you know, there are no preservatives at it. It is unpasteurized. Um, uh, it is a blend of North Carolina grown apples. There are four apples in this blend. I don't have the list in front of me, but we requested more sour apples. Hmm. So they're using that. Uh, we did a little ex experiment in the lab and we were able to taste various yeast and yeast nutrients. And then we had everybody do a blind taste test on their favorite distillate that they liked from apple brandy. And we got 100% all agreed on the exact same one. Oh, so wow. That was from a blind tasting. From a blind tasting. So that was great. Wow. So um, actually, we're ordering the yeast and yeast nutrients this week, as well as the cider. And we'll start that probably, you know, the week of Thanksgiving or right after. So we're, we're ready to go. We're going to make a limited release, you know, maybe um, five or so barrels, uh, maybe a little more if I can convince Vienna. <laughs> um, and uh, it'll be a limited release sold here at our facility. Uh, and then how long will brandy be in a barrel? It will probably stay in the barrel for the, this next year. Okay. So probably nine months by the time we pull it out and um, tap it. Are there any stipulations on how long? I, I know literally nothing about brandy. I think it's to taste. I, be, I believe that it's to taste. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. wow. So you could legitimately put, maybe you wouldn't want to, but you could put apple brandy into a cask for seven days? I believe so, yes. Interesting. But we'll, we'll leave ours a little bit longer. There you go, exactly. Yes, so, yeah. so about maybe next fall, we might start to see the apple brandy yes. available at, at Southern Distilling Company? Yes, and it'll be available here at our site. Probably We won't have enough for ABC stores. We'll sell it as a limited release here. And oh. then, you know, as the market dictates, we'll produce more. So I'm, so I'm going to have to pivot. Since I'm a man, I'm going to have to go from something I don't know anything about yeah. to something I knew, do know about yeah. so I can feel comfortable in myself. Mm -hmm. um, you're producing... Malt whiskey here. Yes. Talk to me about your malt whiskey. Okay. So we have done um, three different um, recipes, uh, or actually four, of single malt. And we had some that were requested by customers, and they had a smoked malt, 
Uh, two different varieties of smoked malt. So we'll call it, you know, malt A and malt B. And their idea is to use that to blend with some other products. So they did a very, very heavy smoke and they want to use that malt to blend with other products. And then we've also done a single malt that will be marketed as a single malt, not blended with other products. Um, and that was, um, we got a little bit of freedom to choose our malt. So we chose a base malt and then we chose a little bit of a, uh, a nutty flavor at 10% and then caramel at 10%. And um, very excited how that came out. We ran that on our continuous system, um, and it's beautiful and clean, and the caramel really comes through with the perfect, perfect amount. That is now in barrels, so we're excited to see how that ages. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Was it American barley, or was it imported Scottish barley for your, for your own one? Uh, it was, it was grown malt. in the U.S. And then yeast. Yes. Did you do any yeast experiments with your malted barley to see what was what different yeasts would do to either yield or flavor, or were you pretty committed to one yeast from the beginning? We were committed to the yeast that we normally use for our, all our whiskeys and bourbons. Um, so we stuck with that yeast for consistency, and, and we absolutely love that yeast, so we're, we're sticking by that one. Are you able to name the yeast? No, not from the company, no. Perfect. No, we're going to keep that We're going to keep that with us. Perfect. I do yeah. love a little secret now yes. and again, yes. so that's perfect. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, we're going to get you out of there on that secret. So thank you very much, Excellent. Susan. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm looking forward to, Jason? Passover? I actually do look forward to that. <laughs> it allows me to drink more mezcal because I stay away from grains. And, uh, and then I just I switch over to mezcal. Um, but that is not what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to you, you and I. Uh, going back to Southern Distilling Company and having an even more in-depth conversation with with Susan because I get the feeling she has so much more to share and so much more to teach about what she does, what she's maybe learned on the job. I found it fascinating, and I just I, I just want to talk to both her and Vienna and just get more information because they are a wealth for what they do. Uh, respectively in the company, both of them are just really a wealth of knowledge. Yep. No, absolutely. It was a, a very easy time that I spent with the two of them and learned a, a whole ton. And yeah, it was, it was just easy. And I, I like hanging out with people when it's easy. Mm -hmm. yep. And so, yeah, we will, we'll definitely be there together. Uh, we'll definitely sit down and uh, I, I told Susan that I thought this little bit of audio uh, turned out to be a little bit longer than anticipated, but this bit of audio will be a table setter mm -hmm. for a future episode yeah. that that will go in deeper on yeast and barley, uh, even, even more conversation about how corn operates, how rye operates. She works with a lot of, of different grain types. Mm-hmm. And has, as you rightly said, a wealth of knowledge around distillation. Well, you know, I found your question to her of does grain play a role in flavoring whiskey interesting? Because as you're asking it, I'm thinking this is American whiskey. There's a reason they're using corn. There's a reason they're, they're using rye and wheat and so on and so forth. And at first I said, are you throwing her a softball? Are you being daft like I didn't understand the reason for the question because I always thought of those grains as flavoring 
But now I understand why you asked it, because she got into, well, this rye from North Carolina tastes different from this rye elsewhere, or this rye that was from last year's harvest that plays into how it's going to flavor the whiskey. And so I always thought, yeah, of course, grain is a flavoring component to the whiskey, but I hadn't thought about, well, how long has it been in a silo? What mm-hmm. type of soil was it perhaps growing in? When was it harvested? Yeah, yeah right. All of What was the things. summer like? Yeah. And it, you know, made me think back to your time with uh, Scott and Becky Harris. That's exactly what I was about to add. Right. And and her talking about the, the different grains from different places. and Exactly. Yeah. And, I, if any, anybody who might be new to the podcast who really enjoyed that portion with Susan there, go into the archives, yeah. look for the most recent episode with Scott and Becky Harris at Catoctin Creek. And they were talking about even differences in flavor from farm to farm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is is a radical notion as well. So, yeah, there's there's a lot to get your geek on yes. if you want to learn more about the influence of grain in whiskey distillation. And I think it's important to point out that those flavor differences are pre-barreling. Mm-hmm. Before the wood has anything to do with the spirit, they're tasting it in the new make. And, and that is that is just fascinating to me. Another thing that fascinated me was the discussion of texture. And mm-hmm. she brought texture back to the fermentation. Just as, and I don't remember if it made it on this podcast, but we were talking to another distillery who talked about increasing texture by way of how they're simply mashing so they got the texture mm. all the way back to mashing. And so you get people who who get so fixated on, well, what is the shape of the still? Or how many plates does that column have? Or how, how high are they filling the spirit or the wash into those stills? And that dictates the flavor. But no, it the flavor starts all the way back to the grain. And then what you do in the mashing, what you do in the fermentation, and so on. Every little bit matters so much. And and these conversations well, and, point that out. And now you've just sown a little seed All right. for part of Vienna's misconception that uh-huh. comes at the end of today's episode. Look at that. So that was a lovely little bread trail you dropped there. I didn't even know I was doing it. Didn't even know. That, Subconscious. That's just how good you are. That's okay. just... That's it. Um, so, yeah, so we'll we'll have uh, Susan's misconception later in the episode. We'll have Vienna's misconception later in the episode. I want to sincerely thank each of them for their time, uh, for sharing the knowledge, for educating me, mm-hmm. uh, and by extension, you and now our listeners. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a tremendous visit, and I'm looking forward to me getting back, and I'm looking forward to you getting to see it for the first time and meet these people for the first time as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm sorry that I couldn't join you, but, or should I say however, the, or should I say that said. No. No? <laughs> anyway, I, th- I thought you did a wonderful job um, uh, leading that interview. So, so I want to thank you for doing that. It was, I thought it was excellent. 
My pleasure. I love it when I have an opportunity to do the interviewing. It doesn't happen nearly often enough, but I'm trying to do more of it in 2019. Yeah. So, I think... With that said... Oh, right. Are you using that right? Rightly? Correctly? Okay. <laughs> As Joshua is my judge. <laughs> uh, do we need to wake up the paper boy? Let's wake him up. How do you want to wake him up? I just, we just need to give him a wee shake on the shoulder and he'll be right with us. Russell, Russell, Russell. Tussle, tussle, tussle. Yeah, his, his name's not Russell. What is his name? Jonathan. <laughs> with an H or without the H? With an H. All oh, right, yeah, I don't trust that. History, history, read all about it. Life story of Playboy Penny. Extra, 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 read all about it. Me and that <laughs> <laughs> you ask a Johnston if the Jonathan has an H or not. Come on, man. <sighs> I think we, uh, well, I think we shared a bit, a bit of news earlier on, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, where, where we said the TTB uh, not being open is affecting us tremendously when it comes to introducing new products to the U.S. We have casks selected. We have whiskey. Uh, and rum uh, sitting in our bottling hall waiting to be bottled that we would love to bring into the U.S. But if we bottled it up, labeled it up, put it on a container, brought it over to our shores, uh, it would be stopped at the docks. They would check paperwork against what's on those containers. And they say, oh, nope, this is not approved. And then they would send it right back. So we're That's in a, a horrible thought. It, it, it's a massive holding pattern that, excuse me, it's a massive holding pattern that we're in right now. Which will be, you know, part of the, the later felt effects of this is that once labels are approved, it's then going to be a competition for shipping to get those approved labels printed and onto bottles, bottles onto containers and containers into ports. And we know that the port workers have a tendency to strike when need be. Yeah. And I I support them in that. <laughs> but then it affects us. And, uh, and then it makes it harder to support them. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as it affects us, that, that's when the support goes away. <laughs> yeah, come on, guys. Can you do it at a time when we don't need it? So, so I, I do. I think we're going to see some backups in ports as well, um, and that'll that'll then slow down getting even approved labeled bottles to market. Yeah, it'll, it'll be really interesting. Um, but as we learn more, and as we talk to more people in the industry about it, uh, if we have news to share about it, we'll we'll definitely. Uh, put it here on the podcast. I plan on being a bit more interactive in our uh, One Nation Under Whiskey Facebook page to give mm. people a bit more insight into what's going on and how we as an industry are being affected by this government shutdown. So, you know, it's interesting. We, we have this One Nation Under Whiskey community with a fair number of people in it, but it's not so active. And I think a lot of that is is on us. So I want to be a bit more active there and get, get some more conversation going there. Yeah, it's interesting that there we were having conversations about the tariffs and how they were affecting American production. And yeah. now on 
top of the tariffs, now we're talking about the inability to get formulas approved, labels approved, and the effect that that's having on small businesses in the United States it's, and, and large businesses. They've got, they're a bigger ship in an ocean. Yeah. Uh, they can, they've got a bit more wiggle room than the smaller producers. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is, this is going to put some people on the bones of their arse which is a good Scottish expression. <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, and, and brighter news. And, yeah, and happier gonna, news. I was going to ask if we had bright news. Yes, we, we do. The Great Isla Swim Bottle is yes. almost sold out now. Mm-hmm. Uh, fewer than 100 bottles available worldwide for sale. More than that were bottled, but a lot of them went out to uh, team members, support members, support staff. Distilleries. Uh, distilleries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was fewer than 100 were put on sale worldwide and, and nearly sold out. Uh, fingers crossed it'll be shipping from Scotland very soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have been very patient uh, with that one. We're as eager as anybody to get it shipped and to doorsteps yes. and to reward people for their patience. Uh, it was interesting. I got an email uh, the other week. A good friend of ours in Seattle, Lars, who's supported us for years and years and years, uh, wrote to me saying, obviously, the the bottle price is higher on this one. Uh, It retails for $500. It is available on the front page of singlecastnation.com if anybody's looking to to acquire Mm -hmm. a bottle. And he said, it's a a bit expensive. It's a bit more expensive. Um, What's the whiskey like? Uh, and, I, and I said to him, you know, I understand that at that price, this might appear on a few more collector's shelves mm-hmm. than, than, you know, our, our more drinking priced releases. Mm-hmm. But you and I did not cut any corners on the whiskey that went into a bottle. It still, for those who open it, it still needed to be cracking whiskey product. And you and I discussed this. It had to rise to the level of the achievement that our three swimmers achieved. Yes. However, this is I think this is the first time where we've bottled something not not knowing if it would be good. Right? We we, we go to no, no, hear me out. I would you know? I wouldn't say it like that. You're saying first time we've bottled something not knowing if it would be good. Hear me we out. We knew it was Hear me out. Mm, don't like the way this is starting. Carry on. When we go to a distillery or if we go to one of our brokers and we're tasting through casks, we taste a cask, we say, no, that one isn't good. Yes, that one is good. This one's fantastic. That one's terrible. You know, y- you name it. This was the first time where we, this is a blended malt whiskey, right? Mm-hmm. And we relied on the distillery managers to pick their favorite whiskey to put into cask and we didn't know if that whiskey from eight distilleries would marry well we didn't know how it would turn out we knew that the whiskey that they put inside was all good but we didn't know if the whiskey once it was all together would play well together and if the final result would actually be fantastic and i would just say we were lucky that it did play well together and it ended up being I'm being very honest here. It ended up being far better than I expected it to be. I expected it to be a nice quaffable whiskey, but it ended <laughs> up to be something very unique, very complex, 
and and delivering flavors that are clearly Isla. However, a play on what Isla could be. I, I don't disagree with any of the words you've used there, but it still comes back to you said bottled. We didn't take a chance on what went on the bottle. We took a chance on what went into the cask. Oh, okay. All right. If you'd said this was the first time we casked something that we had no idea if it was going to be good or not, okay. you and I would not be having this conversation. But it went into bottle. We knew what we had when it went okay. into bottle. See, I, at first I thought you were being a bit pedantic, but no, you, you're you're right. That that's uh, <laughs> you, you're right. I miss. I can be both pedantic and right. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't an either or proposition. <laughs> uh, I guess so. But yeah, uh, you're right. This is the first time we've barreled something, not knowing what it would turn out like. And, and it ended that we bottled something amazing. So now you're going to say barreled, even though barrel is a size, and we didn't use a barrel? Fucking hell. <laughs> I'm sorry. In the interest of getting this right, <laughs> that's why I said cask. You know, I, I don't know why I use the word barreled. You know that I hate when people use the word barrel as a catch-all. Oh, gosh. Uh, here, let me throw one more thing out there. In the interests of this being the behind-the-scenes type of industry podcast, I wanted to share something with our listeners. You and I released the Double Cask Nation Glenfarclas nine-year-old mm -hmm. across two batches. Yeah. And same whiskey. It was all bottled at the exact same time, uh, but we sold it in two batches. One yes. uh, se September 2018 and one January 2019. Mm -hmm. When this podcast goes live, we will have shipped the last of, or we will be working on shipping the last of the second half of the batch. Yes, 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 yes. There are some cases remaining in our warehouse. Mm -hmm. And so it shows us sold out on our website. What happened was... We ended up with a little bit of a, a bottleneck. We had more whiskey to ship in the month of January than we have the ability to ship. Yes. I've seen you say this on Facebook, where we try to ship around 100 bottles a week. Our shipper, it's a small space. They want to be correct in what they bring in. They want to be correct in what they label and ship out. And so we, we keep it around 100. For the month of January, we had about 600 bottles to ship. And wait, and how many weeks are in January? Uh, unfortunately, not seven. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so what we did was we actually put a, a hold on sales with, with those cases remaining. We'll go back, we'll do a, a quick little stock take. But I want to say we have somewhere around... Five, uh, five cases of that Glenfarclas nine-year-old. And those are uh, six bottle cases, so about 30 exactly. bottles left. Yeah, Exactly, exactly. And so once we clear out the bottleneck, uh, once we send out the Glenfarclas, we then have to move on to shipping out the Whiskey Jubilee Chicago bottling, mm -hmm. uh, which again, people have been very patient waiting on that coming out, and we always thank them for their patience. Mm -hmm. So by about mid-February, if you did miss out on the Glenfarclas nine-year-old, combination of two sherry casks, one first fill, one second fill, 
it will be hitting our page. Keep an eye on the Facebook uh, group. Keep listening to this podcast. You know that somewhere around mid-February, mm-hmm. uh, we'll be we'll be re-releasing yeah. uh, or finishing out the last of that. But yeah, it-, it was important to me that we we didn't just keep taking orders and keep adding to our own backlog, but instead said, okay. Let's get the shipping taken yeah. care of. Yeah. So, so a bit like our conversation with Susan in Vienna today, it's exciting to select casks. It's exciting to get them bottled, labeled, and imported. You then have to do the logistics mm-hmm. of getting it sold and out to people. So you 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 got to be careful. So that's the little bit of behind the scenes that I wanted to share. That that might have been interesting for one person out there. Um, if you did find that interesting, thank yeah. you for indulging me. Yeah, and and for those that that don't do Facebook, uh, we will be emailing uh, everybody on our all of our members on the mailing list to let them know when those thirty bottles will go on sale too. We don't want to leave anyone out who is adverse to Facebook, much like you are somewhat adverse to Facebook. So, I'd even remove somewhat and say very. <laughs> Very adverse to Facebook. Let me let me add in one last bit of news, and this is going to back us back up to the Great Isla Swim. You and I, sir, are going to be on Isla toward the end of February, and we're going to be hand delivering these bottles to the distilleries. And as a reminder, this Great Isla Swim bottling, even though it's five hundred dollars per bottle, we're not making a single penny. And this is just us. We had to sponsor the swimmers, the film crew, uh, Gus, who was who is the gentleman who helped the swimmers around the island. You know, you name it. This is us. Just uh, we're generous people, but we do have to get paid back. So we we just want to recoup the costs that that incurred hosting these people around for a bit over a week on the island, and then we're raising funds for RNLI, Royal National Lifeboat Institute. Very good. And we're going to be hand-delivering a check to them while we're there uh, to the tune of 10,000 American dollars. You know, just like with Giving Tuesday that we did late last year, you know, we are all about giving back where and when we can and urging those to do the same. And so this is our way to to give back to Isla, who takes care of us as whiskey drinkers and takes care of its residents and those that work on the waters. Uh, It's a very important organization that needs support. Beautiful. Well said, and I second everything you said. Thank you, sir. We need to get to misconceptions, but I want to just remind everybody, if you want to email us for whatever reason, or if you have a question, if you have comments, email us... You say for whatever reason, this is going out January 30. They've got the 30th and the 31st to get their questions in for the the mid-February mail episode that will close out season two of One Nation Under Whiskey. So give them the address so that they can get their questions in under the wire if they need to. Yes. Uh, The email is questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. They can post a question on our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook, go to the search bar, search out One Nation Under Whiskey, and you'll find our group there. You could also tweet at us, at One Nation Whiskey. You could Instagram us, at One Nation Under Whiskey. And whiskey is always spelt without 
and E. So there you go. With that said, oh. should we say our goodbyes and then hand it over to the misconceptions? You seem to be a good fan of that. I quite like it. I like giving our interviewees the last word because we'll be back in two weeks. Oh, we will, won't we? Yeah, <laughs> you say that with such dread in your voice. <laughs> oh, 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 fuck, we're coming back. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. Oh, do we, <laughs> we have to do Come on, man. We got to close out season two. That's right. The mailbag episode will be the closer of season two. And then after that, we will open with season three. That's it. And I think we launch season three with James Wills of Kilhoman Distillery. That is true. Yeah, he'll be back on the on the podcast. It'll be his second time with us. And uh, I thought the conversation was so good, so fun and funny. He's a funny guy and, and just a blast to hang out with. So I think that'll be a fun episode for people. Look at us having plans. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, shall we hand the baton to uh, I- Susan and Vienna? I think so. Let's just reiterate our thanks to Vienna and Susan. Mm -hmm. And of course, our thanks to the listeners for spending their time with us. Always means the world to us. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Indeed. We will (laughs) be back for the close of season two. Joshua, thanks for editing this. That's why I did the gaps so that it would make use of your editing prowess. Uh, but you know what? I'm going to leave that in so people can see the shit I have to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, a couple of misconceptions and we're gone. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Cheers. Cheerio. Oh, hold on. i gotta got to really get a good click in here. Shave and a haircut. Two bits. Four potato. (laughs) Uh, Susan, misconception from your time with Southern Distilling Company. One of the aspects of our job is obviously um, tourism and educating the public as they come through our facility. Um, Most people do not fully understand how uh, bourbon or whiskey is made or even how distillation works and how that separation process works. So it has been interesting uh, and and fun to enlighten people. Um, we've had uh, several people ask us, why doesn't it come off the still brown? Um, obviously, 100% of the color comes from the barrel, so we're able to educate people. Uh, backing up a little further, um, when we show people the grain and that we're grinding the grain and, and that we cook the grain, um, we have a lot of people ask us how much sugar we add. Um, not realizing that all of the starch and sugars are available in the grain. It's, you need to get them out through the grind and the cook process. Um, and uh, one of my own misconceptions that I had coming in was I've always been a uh, more weeded bourbon drinker. And um, coming through here and making the various ryes and a high rye bourbon as well as our 95% rye, um, one of my favorite products coming out of here, and I can't wait for it to release uh, officially and commercially, is our 95% rye. Um, I it, love that product. It's, it's extremely smooth. It's unexpectedly smooth, and um, it has such depths of flavor um, as you taste it. Um, obviously, I still love weeded bourbon, but um, I'm really excited for the rye to come out. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So, <laughs> Vienna with Misconception. One of our our tenants of our company culture has 
from the beginning been to blend heritage and innovation. And I think that one of the, the misconceptions in the spirits industry, particularly in whiskey production, is that uh, it's all heritage, it's done the same way it's always been done, um, and mostly by you know, bearded guys in flannel. And we bring innovation and blend it together with that heritage. We, we do a lot of things the traditional way. We barrel in 53-gallon barrels. We um, use a lot of, of heritage recipes with our whiskey production. And yet at the same time, we have innovative control systems. We do very technology-forward um, approaches to our distillation and our fermentation here at the plant. Um, and we've got great women leaders in our company, which I think is a, a nice innovation in the spirits industry today as well. Ah, we've been elephantized. And I'm sitting a little sideways after that. Because it's Passover? You get elephantized at Passover? <laughs> no, you're supposed to sit on a, a on a pillow, like crooked on a pillow. I only sit on one of those, you know, pregnancy donuts. I only sit on a husband. It's an unleavened pregnancy donut that I sit on. <laughs> they made it in fewer than 18 minutes. <laughs> It's a matzah donut that I sit on. Uh, uh, Passover humor. Who doesn't love it? The people who get passed over. Oh! oh. oh.